right. Thank you, Melinda and Melody. Um, if your children are kindergarten to third grade, uh, they can dismiss out of the back in just a second with uh, Melody. If your children are older and are staying with us, or if you're an adult and would like, uh, there's activities on that back table you're free to take to your seat. Um, there's also a children's sermon note that goes along with the sermon uh, that they're free to grab uh, from that back sheet. It's got a bingo game that goes along with uh, the sermon. And uh, if they come see me afterwards, I'll have a piece of candy for them. Well, welcome to Living Up Church. We're so glad you have joined us this Memorial Day weekend, uh, despite the gloominess. Uh, but today we are uh, continuing in our series that we are calling uh, The Exodus. And The Exodus is the story of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. And the main leader of that, uh, that God has chosen to use, is a man by the name of Moses. In our tendency, when we think of Moses, is to see him through the, the lens of the great Charleston Heston character. We think of Moses as a hero. I think I've got a picture of him in just a second. Uh, we think of Moses as a hero with his arms raised and the, the waters of the Red Sea parting all around him. We think of Moses as almost on a like, mythical hero level. That's how we envision Moses. We think of him as someone so much greater than us. So that's the image we have in our head. But as we've seen over these last few weeks, that's not at all who Moses was. Moses, by the time we get to the Exodus, is an 80-year-old man who for the past 40 years has been living in the middle of nowhere, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He spent his first 40 years in the palace of Egypt, but fled after he killed an Egyptian. Uh, the things, they aren't really looking up for Moses when God calls him in Exodus chapter 3. As we come to Exodus chapter 6, we see that he is once again doubting God's call on his life to lead the Exodus. And in the midst of this doubt, in the midst of him arguing with God, we get this interlude in the story. And Moses, who is the writer of the book of Exodus, fills this interlude with his genealogy. Now, genealogies are one of those things that when we come to in the Bible, we tend to just skip over. Like if you're doing a reading plan or you're reading a book of a Bible and you come to a genealogy, you at best skim it and like look for some familiar names. But the genealogies are there for a reason, and they are there to point us to truth. Now, genealogies in our world seem to kind of come in and out of fashion. There seem to be times where everyone is fascinated with genealogies, and then there's times where they're just an afterthought. Right now, people will go to Ancestry.com, or the cool thing now is to get one of those DNA things and see where you're connected to. But when we research our genealogies, we do so to find the famous and important people that we are related to. Right? My last name is Taylor, and I think every ancestry search with the name Taylor, and it automatically finds itself back to the 12th president, Zachary Taylor. Everyone has just a hint of English ancestry, and them seems to be linked to Queen Elizabeth, you fill in the blank. We search our genealogies looking for the important and the powerful. When I tell you of my family history, I highlight those that were influential in my life, that had similar careers, those who were important people. When I tell you of my family history, I leave out the names of those who lived in obscurity, those with a criminal record and those with shady dealings. I and we, we just gloss over those people. And we do that as a culture as well. Look at America right now. We are doing our best to delete everything from our history books and every statue that we are ashamed of. Other ancient Near Eastern cultures refuse to record anything that might bring shame or paint them in a negative light. And so that's what you would expect with the Bible. They were that same ancient Near Eastern culture. But the Bible is brutally honest and transparent about the unimpressive and sinful behavior of God's chosen people. And this only strengthens the reliability of the Bible. The Bible is more than willing to share the truth as opposed to a polished up version. 
And in the Bible, genealogies aren't there so much for their generation-to-generation accuracy. In fact, often generations were skipped and only certain people were highlighted. But they are there to highlight a point. And that point is rarely how great we are as humans. One of the most famous and most important genealogies in the Bible is found in the book of Matthew and Luke. And that genealogy is important because it connects Jesus back to the Old Testament prophecies. But it's fascinating because his genealogy is littered with people that had less than reputable histories. God uses broken people to accomplish his purposes. And we find that same thing in Moses' family history. So we're in Exodus chapter 6, if you want to head there. But the genealogy in Exodus 6 isn't filled with heroes, but instead it's going to be filled with sinners. It's going to be filled with losers. And it's going to be filled with those who live their life in obscurity. So why is that in the Bible? And why do we care? Let's read Exodus 6 and see if we can figure it out. We're going to start in Exodus 6, verse 6. This is God talking to Moses. He says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. So if you remember from last week, things weren't going uh, so well for Moses and the Hebrew people. Pharaoh, when they had asked for a three-day weekend to go worship, had upped their workload and increased their oppression. The people have been promised an escape by God, but so far it's been all bad news. And so God comes to Moses, and, and he once again promises him these great things. God gives him these seven I will statements that are uttered, this is exciting, they're uttered in the perfect passive indicative tense. And this is significant because it meant that God has already accomplished these things. He says it is finished, it is complete. There's no doubt in these promises. God says I've already done these things, and you will see them fulfilled, Moses. It's not a maybe promise, it's not an if I'm able promise, but it's an I have already completed the work promise. And so Moses is called to share this great news with the Israelites, but they are grumpy because things have gotten harder and they can't see beyond today, so they ignore him and they don't listen. As you can imagine, that had to have been disheartening and discouraging for Moses. My own people won't even listen to my message. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Moses says, the Israelites, my own people, won't listen to me. Pharaoh hasn't listened in the past. So Moses says, why, God, do I need to go through this humiliation again? And we see his questioning spirit, his doubt, his insecurity arise again. I have faltering lips. They won't listen to me. Moses, like so many of us, feels inadequate, unqualified, and unworthy. But God has called him to go. And it's at this point in the story that we jump into the genealogy or the the family line of the brothers Moses and Aaron. We're in verse 13, and we're going to get some funny names now. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Then we get to genealogy. These were the heads of the families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanuk and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. 
The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their record. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Zihar, Izhar, were Korah, Nepeg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishiel, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elsheba, daughter of Amnadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abasaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These were the heads of the Levite family, clan by clan. It's exciting stuff right there. We're going to touch on some of these names in a bit, but this is an incredibly unimpressive pedigree from which Moses and Aaron come. A pedigree that is filled with more felons than heroes. And from there we go to verse 26 and we get a recap of the situation. Verse 26 says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Moses, or Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. I love verse 26. It was this Aaron and Moses who came from this messed up family line that God called to lead the Israelites and go before Pharaoh. It was this Aaron and Moses. There wasn't a different, more qualified Aaron and Moses, but it was these, these guys. It was these everyday, ordinary guys from this messed up family tree that God used. And in that, we were given hope. I don't know about you, but I feel inadequate like Moses, and my family tree looks more, more like Moses than it does one of royalty or earthly qualifications. So we're going to jump into that. We're going to study this, but before that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, just for this section of Scripture, Lord. We thank you uh, that you are a God that, that uses and that saves messed up, broken people like Moses and Aaron and me. Uh, God, we thank you that, that you uh, redeem our past, that you redeem our lives, and that you give us hope and new life in you. So God, I pray that as we're here today, Lord, that you would just help us to, to see how you are transforming and working in our lives, to see how you offer hope and forgiveness no matter what our current situation and our past looks like. God, we thank you. You are a God of broken people. It's your name we pray. Amen. So a lot of the family tree listed here, we will, we will never hear from again. These are just ordinary people who, who, re, who left no recorded impact on the world. They were just people who lived out their lives in relative obscurity. And the names we will see again in the Bible were some of the worst of the worst. Moses is doubting that he is qualified for the task. And God, instead of patting him on the back and saying, Moses, you are the man, you can do this. Instead, he reminds him of where he came from. This intentional framing of the genealogy reveals the point of the genealogy itself. God had Moses record it to emphasize that Moses was a regular, unimpressive man. In the ancient Near East, status and credentials were primarily found in your family's line. This doesn't bode well for Moses. 
Here are just a few of his relatives with a sketchy track record. In Genesis 35:22, we hear that Reuben had an intimate encounter with his father's concubine. In Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi become outraged and they go kill all the men of a city of the city because of a crime they committed against their sister. In Numbers 16, Korah is going to rebel against Moses and Aaron, and God is going to swallow him up in the ground. We read it there, but Amram, Moses' own dad, married his own aunt. That's a confusing family tree. Aaron would have two sons that were consumed by fire because of their disobedience to God. Additionally, 40 years earlier, Moses himself has killed an Egyptian man and fled for his life. Morally speaking, this family line is quite unimpressive. Combined with Moses' lack of ability to speak, it seems odd that God would select Moses to be his mouthpiece. But that seems to be exactly the point. God chooses the unimpressive to do great things for his glory. But before we get there, I want to touch uh, on our first point. Throughout this story, we have seen and we are going to see Moses riddled with doubt and with uncertainty. We're going to see him deal with anger, with feelings of inadequacy and the desire that, that God would just use someone else. And when we read that, we shake our head at Moses. We say, come on, Moses. God is talking to you in a bush. He is with you. He is all powerful. Just be quiet and trust God, Moses. But then when we see his family tree and just how messed up it was, you can see why he would be filled with feelings of inadequacy. Nothing in his life or his family tree would have made him feel qualified or up for the task. You see these people and you can only imagine what the day-to-day or the family reunion looked like. These were people who you wouldn't trust. These are people that were selfish, people with anger issues themselves, people that were liars and manipulators. So naturally, Moses had feelings of inadequacy. Anger was his go-to response, and he trusted no one. But to fulfill God's calling on his life, Moses would have to learn to trust God in spite of his past and his upbringing. And I say that to call us to grace, patience, and love for one another. We see Moses' name in the Bible, and we assume he's a hero from a royal line, but he's far from it. In the same way, if you are blessed to grow up in a great family, in a healthy family, it is easy to assume that everyone else has experienced the same thing. We know that's far from the truth. And so, point one, it's up there. But you don't know where people come from. You don't know what people are going through. So have grace, show compassion, and love one another. It's so easy to judge Moses, but when we get a little insight into his life, it's easier to have compassion for him. In the same way, we don't know our neighbor's story, our co-worker's story, the person at church's story. So have compassion and extend grace to one another. We don't know what those around us are going through today and this week, so have compassion and don't jump to judgment and conclusions. We are all a product of our upbringing, and we all have rough edges that God is refining. Now, I'm not saying that we are victims to our past and that God can't use us. Absolutely not. That's the opposite of the point, and we're going to get there in a second. But we all have life to overcome, so extend grace to one another. This quote's all over the Internet, but the best I could trace it back was to a lady named Wendy Mass. But the quote is this. It says, be kind, for everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. There's a lot of truth in that. Every one of us, without exception, has been hurt by the sin of this world and by the sins of others. For some, it's more egregious than others, but we all have hurts. We're all going through something and have been through something, so be kind and compassionate to one another. And we as Christians ought to be the most grace-filled and compassionate of all. 
Paul summed it up this way in Ephesians 4.32. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ Jesus forgave you. So be kind to one another and forgive one another because you yourself have been forgiven when you deserve justice and judgment. And this is twofold. We need to extend grace, love, and forgiveness to those we know who are not believers. And we need to extend grace, love, and forgiveness to those that we know are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's so many in our community and in our sphere of influence who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They don't yet know the hope, the grace, the forgiveness, and life available in Jesus. They don't walk through this life assured of their future and eternity as many of us do. We should have love and grace for those people. I can't imagine walking through this life without the hope and love of Jesus. This life, this world is difficult. I can't imagine doing that without hope. Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, uh, one of my favorite verses, it's right after John the Baptist has been killed, his good friend. He, he's trying to get away on himself, and the crowds follow him. And he doesn't condemn them, but instead he says, it says, when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion because the people were harassed. They were hurting. They were broken. They had no hope. No shepherd to help them. So as Christians, instead of getting upset when the world doesn't live and believe like we do, we are called to love and have compassion for them and point them to Jesus. We can't expect an unbelieving world to believe and act like us. That's simply not logical. So instead of getting upset when the world swears, lies, grumbles, argues, sin, we are called to respond with love, compassion, and forgiveness instead of anger. Paul and Philippians 3.18 writes of those who don't know Jesus. He says he does so with tears in his eyes. His heart is overwhelmed with compassion for those that don't know the hope that he has. So this week when someone says something ridiculous, when they are overbearing and controlling, when they lash out, when they are hurtful, try and take a step back and have compassion before you jump to judgment and condemnation. And this goes for within the church as well. Sometimes it's easy to assume that everyone in the church's past looks like yours. Their current challenges look like yours, but we all come from different backgrounds and are going through different challenges. I had a conversation with a friend just this week that is a deacon at a church. He served faithfully in churches for 50 years. He started to share some of his story, and my, my heart, I had no idea, and my heart broke and was overwhelmed with some of the challenges he has faced in life and is facing today. We never know what others are going through or what their past looks like. Jesus in John 13 says, It is by our love for one another that people should know we are Christians. But all too often, love is sadly not the trademark of the church. In James 4, James calls on us to not slander, to not gossip, or speak evil against one another. In James 5, he says, don't grumble and complain against one another. Peter in 1 Peter 3 uh, gives this instruction. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing. So again, this week, go against yours and my natural instinct, which is to criticize, grumble, complain, and judge, but instead show compassion and love and walk in humility. The walking in humility is so important because we're pretty good sometimes at showing compassion and grace to ourselves because we know our story. We, we know our battles. We know our past. But give that same benefit of the doubt to others. 
So as we read this genealogy, we are reminded that Moses, Aaron, and all of us have come through and are going through a lot. So we should extend compassion, grace, mercy, and love to one another. From there, the next thing I want us to see in this passage, I think, is really the, the primary point of the genealogy, along with point three. And it's a point that is declared to us over and over and throughout the whole of the Bible. And the point is simply, God saves broken people. God saves broken people. Every other religion in the world says you have to earn your way to God or to heaven. Other religions declare that God is only for the elite or the special. But this genealogy and really the whole of the Bible goes out of its way to say that God saves broken people. He saves sinners. He saves the outcasts. He saves the unexpected and he saves the unimportant. God saves broken people. And it doesn't stop there, but this genealogy in the Bible itself declares not only does God save broken people, but it goes out of its way to convince you and me that we are broken, sinful people in need of a Savior. The Bible is the antithesis of social media. On social media, we go out of our way to declare to the world the greatness and the perfection of our lives. But the Bible goes out of its way to remind us that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. The world and other religions say you can work yourself to heaven, to the great life, whatever that is. The Bible declares you can't work your way there, but God has made a way. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that every one of us, the Bible says, is broken, is sinful, and has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wage or the consequence of that sin is death and separation from God. It says that our sin has separated us from a holy and perfect God, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn our way back to him. We are all broken and without hope until God intervenes to save broken people like you and I. The second half of the verse is the hope. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has made a way and he desires to save any and all the broken people that will turn and follow after him. Paul in Romans 5 says, you see at just the right time when we were powerless. When we had nothing to offer, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still broken and messed up, Christ died for us. We are broken sinners, and yet Jesus dies for us sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up because we couldn't. But he died for us while we were sinners to make a way for us to be clean, to be forgiven, to be saved. God saves broken people, and he offers you forgiveness, hope, Life, salvation, heaven, if you will turn and follow after him today. God didn't choose Moses and Aaron because of their pedigree and goodness, but he chose them, he saved them because they were his people, and he loved them. In the same way, God doesn't choose you because of your pedigree, because of your goodness and righteousness, but he saves you and he offers you salvation out of his love, his grace, and his goodness. The gospel, the Bible, is the story of God's love and his saving of broken people like you and me. So if you're here today and you have experienced that forgiveness, would you in humility just give thanks that God saved you despite your brokenness? There's absolutely nothing about you and I that made us worthy of God's love and forgiveness. But it's all about him and his amazing grace. Would you give thanks today that God saves broken people? 
And if you're here today and you've never experienced God's love and forgiveness, then know that, you're broke, know that your brokenness, your family history, your sin, your failures, they don't disqualify you from God's love and forgiveness, but instead they make you the perfect recipient. And the Bible declares that God loves you and he waits for you today to turn to him and ask for that forgiveness. And the Bible says that when you do, you will be forgiven. So that's you today, and you have never followed Jesus with your life. You can pray and follow God in your seat. You can say something as simply as, God, I believe that you are God. I believe you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I believe he rose victorious over the grave, and I want to follow after him. The Bible says if you do that, you will be forgiven. Or if you're not ready, please come and talk with me, and I would love to answer your questions and share with you how you can trust him with your life. God saves broken people just like you and I. And the next thing we see from this genealogy, genealogy is not only does God save broken people, but God uses broken people. God uses broken people to share his good news and to redeem the world back to him. God not only desires to save you, but he desires to give your life eternal meaning and purpose and use you to connect those around you back to him. I love verse 26. We, we hear the whole family tree we are overwhelmed by the brokenness of the people. And then it reads, it was this Aaron and Moses. It was this Aaron and Moses who came from a messed up family and who were messed up themselves that God called to lead his people out of Egypt. It was almost like he was answering to the people who were saying, I know a Moses, but that can't be him. The Moses I know is a murderer and he stutters. Or I know an Aaron, but his family is crazy. He can't even control his own children. That can't be him. But this is the proof that this is indeed the regular, ordinary Aaron and Moses that everyone knew. Have you ever had that experience before? Where you meet someone from high school or elementary school that you haven't seen in 20 years. And they're a radically different person. It may be that they are doing something great or they've come to faith and they're on fire from God. And you're like, I knew a Mike or I knew a Mary from my hometown, but that's got to be a different Mike or Mary. I know I've had that experience. I've had a few friends from high school that have met Jesus and their lives look so dramatically different from those days that I have had to, to do a double take and, and go on Facebook and confirm that they are indeed from my hometown and my graduating class. God not only saves broken people, but he transforms them and he uses them for his glory and his purposes. I know your family is messed up. I know your past is broken. I know you have been hurt. I know you have sinned, but that does not mean that God is done with you, that he doesn't desire to use you for his glory and his purposes. Right now, we, we background check everyone in our church that's with children. So there's something that could pop up that could disqualify you from the nursery. But even that doesn't mean you can't be used to reach your neighborhood with the gospel and to serve others. God uses broken people for his glory. And in that, it's often our brokenness that he uses to shine and proclaim his glory the most. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we, we ourselves receive from God. Paul says that it's our past hurts, our past brokenness. He says that's an opportunity for us to love and comfort others in the same way. To comfort others in the same way that we have been loved and comforted by God. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He says, but we, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So what Paul says here is that despite the challenges and difficulties and circumstances today and of my past, I am steadfast in my ministry of glorifying God and making him known. And then Paul takes it a step further and says that the difficulties, the challenges, the hurts, the pains, the pitfalls of this world are not detriments to the mission of making God known, but they are actually beneficial to my desire to praise God and make him known. Paul says our call, our purpose, our mission is to shine the light of God to the world around us. He says we carry that light in us as broken jars of clay. And the imagery here is that the cracks, the dents, the struggles of this life that we have endured are not a detriment, but they become the cracks, the dents, the struggles that shine the light to the world around us. Our brokenness is an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus to the world. Our challenges, our heartaches, our difficulties, our trials, our hurts are just that. They are difficult, they are hard, they are sad, and they hurt. But when we praise God in those times and despite those times, our light shines. Jesus' light shines the world through us. God uses broken people. And not only does he use broken people, but he uses our brokenness to shine his light, his goodness, his hope, his salvation, his love to the world. So if your past is filled with brokenness, then know that God loves you and he desires to forgive you and save you. But it doesn't stop there. He desires to heal you and use you in all of your brokenness to shine his hope and his light to the world around you. The brokenness of our lives and our world is fully evident in the lives and the family tree of Moses and Aaron. And that is good news because our lives are full of the same brokenness today. God doesn't just save the elite of society or those that seem better than the rest. But God saves and uses broken people like you and I. So as we leave today, have compassion and love for one another and give thanks that God saves broken sinners like you and I. Melinda's going to come, and she's going to come, and she's going to play as we reflect on this passage of Scripture. And as she comes, I want to give you the opportunity to reflect on your life and where you are today. And so the first place I think we can be today is that we can be broken and in need of a Savior. We can recognize that we are the sinner that the Bible talks about, and that we have no hope of working our way to God. But the good news is that God loves us, and he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. If you will turn and trust him, he will forgive you. So as Melinda plays in just a second, you can bow your head and pray in your seat and ask God for forgiveness. The Bible says if you do that, he will be faithful to forgive. Maybe you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus for a while or for a long time. And as you look at Moses' family tree, you see your family line in there. If you look at Moses' past, you see your past and your hurts and your brokenness. 
Would you take a minute right now and just give thanks for the salvation you have in Jesus? And as you do that, would you humble yourself and ask for God's love and compassion for others? And lastly, God not only saves broken people, but he uses broken people like you and I. How is it that God desires to use you for his glory and for his purposes? Would you ask God to reveal that to you? And then would you go and serve and love and share as he calls? I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, Melinda's going to play for a minute or two. And as she plays, I just ask everyone to bow their head and reflect on God's word. And then I'll come back and close us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much uh, for who you are. We thank you so much that you save broken, messed up people like me. And we thank you that you came and you gave your life for sinners like me. We thank you for the assurance that if we turn and trust in you, you will forgive. God, we thank you that you don't only save, but that you use us for your glory and for your name's sake. God, we thank you that you redeem the hurts and the pains and the trials of our life, that you redeem them and that you use those to shine your light to the broken world around us. God, may we be a people that are not just recipients of your grace, but that we are bearers of of your grace, that we are people that shine your light to the world around us, that people that show your grace and point people to you. God, I pray that you would redeem and use the brokenness in our lives to declare your glory and your power and your love and your goodness to the world around us. Lord, we are thankful that you save sinners like Moses and Aaron that you use sinners like Moses and Aaron, that you save and use us as well. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We praise and we glorify you. It's your name we pray. Lord, we thank you for the the grace and mercy that awaits when we turn our eyes to you. Lord, may we be a people that are bearers of your hope and your light to the world this week. God, we thank you for the, the love and the grace and forgiveness we have in you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you again so much for being here uh, this morning. If you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the vicinity of you. Uh, If you wouldn't mind filling that out and placing it, there's a wood box on that back table. Uh, We would really appreciate it. That's also where you place your uh, tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. Uh, In terms of announcements, we have a few announcements. We have youth group that meets here at the church on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7. 
We have kids camp and youth camp coming up this summer. That information's on the back of your sermon notes. If you didn't get one of those, you can grab one on the way out. Um, but we do have uh, registration forms for that. If you're going to kids camp, you can come see me. If you're going to youth camp, uh, you can see uh, Mr. Justin about that. Uh, we have Vacation Bible School here at uh, Living Hope, August 1st to 4th. I'd uh, love for you to join us and be a part of that. Registration is open if you want to register your children. And then we are taking a mission trip up to LaBarge to help them put on a VBS June 28th and 29th. If you're interested in that, um, come see me, and we will uh, get you uh, set up to help. So thank you so much for being here this week. We hope you have a wonderful week. We hope to see you again next week. Mm-hmm.